0: Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. I'm Rick Symprint. The Ontario legislature has resumed after a winter break that's been dominated by the escalating conflict with Ontario's teachers. The Prime Minister says it is past time to resolve the nationwide blockades and tensions over a BC pipeline project and is asking demonstrators to engage with his government to seek a solution. What happens when children with autism reach adulthood? Well, Global News National Online Journalist Megan Cauley tells us the gap in care is incredible. And a very interesting story in Detroit, And as the mayor of Windsor, thinking out loud, a thought that may echo in other cities, including here in Hamilton. We'll explain next on the Scott Thompson Show podcast.
1: Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
0: The Ontario legislature resuming today after a winter break that was certainly dominated, consumed by the escalating conflict with the province's teachers, MPPs, back at work today. And guess what was the first question? ...at Queen's Park today. ...and parents are scrambling to deal with the impact of
2: government's tax. The government, the premier, and its <coughs> minister have poisoned the relationship with teachers, with school board, with unions at the bargaining table, and the province's parents and
0: students. Why is this minister still at his job? So the audio is not the greatest. It was taken by Global's Ta- Travis Danrage when he was in the gallery in the provincial legislature, but it is of NDP leader Andrea Horvath... Asking the first question about teachers and, more specifically, why is Stephen Lecce still the education minister? So that's one of the hot topics at Queen's Park as the spring session begins. Healthcare spending will be hot and heavy in this session. Autism funding. For our LRT lovers out there, yes, that will also be on the docket. But the teacher's issue is going to dominate this session. There's no doubt about it. And there's an interesting comment from House Leader Paul Calendra that I'm gonna get our first guest to chime in on. His name is Christo Avelas from the U of T and he joins us now. Christo, how are you? Uh, great, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, so as we know, contract talks between the PC government and the four major teachers unions have largely stalled. I know OECD is going back to the table through mediation. Uh, we've seen rotating strikes, we've seen province-wide strikes, another one planned for this Friday. That is going to see about 2 million students out of class. The messaging from the Ford government on teachers, not only today but through the spring session, to me is going to be interesting. Do you expect more of the same? Do you expect a different stance?
3: I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you would think that you would expect more of the same because they haven't shifted yet, but the the same isn't working necessarily because... You know, their whole focus, which is that the teachers are unwilling to negotiate, that the teachers are, in a sense, in it for themselves, I don't think is resonating with the public, because if you've looked at some recent polling, the vast majority, or at least a strong majority of Ontarians are siding with the teachers, and very few people are siding with the government. You know, there's a portion of the people that are sort of on neither side, but the government isn't really getting a lot of support. And, you know, the government is getting less support on this issue than their vote total in 2018, meaning that at least some of the people that voted for this Ford regime are not supporting them on this particular issue. And it seems like the teachers have been effective of making this about, you know, the effect on education, right, which is to say that this is about class sizes, this is about course availability, this is about, you know, safety and quality of education. Uh, and yes, there are cost of living increases in here, but they are they are rather modest. And I think most Ontarians are against the government here.
0: Is the teachers, in in and I guess uh, through uh, their association, the teachers' unions, are they winning the public perception battle because Ontarians can relate more to those who work uh, as opposed to those who govern?
3: I mean... It, I, to, to to some degree, but I don't know if it's quite like that because there have been other labor disputes between public sector workers and, and the governments that, 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 that bargain with them, and the public has sometimes sided with the government. Um, so every case is different, but in this particular case, the teachers and those who support the teachers have been able to make a credible case to, again, not every Ontarian, but a majority of Ontarians, uh, including some conservative voters, that this is fundamentally about the quality of your children's education and the importance of schools in your community. And the way in which they've been striking, which is to give advance notice, to, to not do you know, a total strike, to keep on doing extracurricular activities, has sort of struck a balance between you know letting their voice be heard and their impact be felt without causing undue burden on students and families. And I think that sort of balance has really, like, spoken to people about why this is important. And in this particular case, because Doug Ford, you know, ran on, yes, finding efficiencies, but, but basically lied to Ontarians when he said that there would not be a single frontline service job cut, that there would not be, you know, any meaningful effects on the quality of your public services because I will only cut the fat, uh, you know, cut the fat, cut the, you know, the excess, I mean, Doug Ford lied to people. He lied willingly to the Ontario people when he said that. And I think that it's coming back to him here. And unlike, say, Mike Harris, 20-plus years ago, who had a mandate for harsh austerity and going at public sector workers, Doug Ford got no such mandate. And I don't think Ontarians are getting what they voted for here. And as such, it's, the government's having a real hard time, you know, getting on the people's good side on this issue.
0: Rick Samperdin for Scott Thompson here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Our opening guest is Christo Avalis, U of T professor. We're talking about the teacher strikes and the first day back to work for MPPs at Queen's Park. House Leader Paul Calandra, and this is what is on the minds of many, acknowledges that the labor dispute will likely dominate this opening session at the provincial legislature, but says the government has no immediate plans to introduce back to work legislation. Is that on the horizon?
3: I mean, I'm not sure it is right now. One, and maybe the government doesn't strictly care about this, but one, the right to strike and bargain collectively is a charter right. Every bit as important as the right to religion and the right to free speech and all of our other basic human freedoms. And a government should, I think, in all cases resist that right because, uh, or the the use of back-to-work legislation because it is an infringement on basic human rights. And whether that's a liberal government or a conservative government, whether it's Trudeau or Ford, They've both signaled willingness to violate that human right. And I would hope the government would resist doing so in this circumstance. But I think beyond that, governments have been willing to do it and let the courts call them out two or three years later because in immediate terms, they see it as a political benefit to using back-to-work legislation. Ford and Wynne and Trudeau have all done so in in, in recent years. Um, Here, I don't know if it'll play well again the teacher strikes have been rather modest. They've been limited. They've been scheduled. They've rarely been province-wide, and they've only really ever been for like a day at a time. And so I think that when you combine that with, you know, uh, the public perception, it'll be hard legally, from a a constitutional perspective, to sell back-to-work legislation. And politically, I don't think it's going to play well right now. It seems like, you know, the government um would be uh, i think would be seen as overstepping its bounds given that uh you know the process has played out without that sort of intervention thus far
0: it's not like we haven't seen that with you know the reduction of toronto council and and other things but uh, that may be the case uh the back-to-work legislation always fuels the debate on whether teachers should be deemed an essential service um I- i'm not sure if you want to comment on that but it always seems to open up that door to that commentary
3: yeah, I mean, like, you know, the qualifications for essentiality are complex. They are often, they have to be determined by, by de- de- deliberation and negotiation between the workers and the government. So, you know, this actually was a major issue back in 2016. And it's actually what conferred the right to strike as a, as a basic human right under Canadian law, uh, when the Saskatchewan government basically tried to unilaterally declare the vast majority of its provincial public services essential Without necessarily having to prove it or go through negotiations, and you know, if if teachers could be proven to be essential, then maybe that argument could be made. But of course, the government would lose certain flexibility, and you know, a lot of the other essential workers in this province are often quite well taken care of, and, and frankly, are are seen as allies of the the provincial progressive conservatives, especially the the police officers. And so, you know, those workers give, especially given you know, relatively lower levels of qualification. Uh, get paid rather well compared to teachers in some ways. And so I don't know if this government would want teachers to be essentialized uh, if their goal is to save money, because that might not necessarily lead to cost savings. It might lead to more labor stability because, you know, strikes can still happen, you know, like, you know, strike uh, illegal strikes can happen. Uh, Illegal lockouts could hypothetically happen, but if teachers are made essential that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to deal with the budgetary issue. You know, they stop the bargain with them. The only difference is that at a certain point, it'll likely go to binding arbitration because, as we know, the teacher, you know, police officers, firefighters, some other workers that are deemed essential, they still have the right to negotiate a collective agreement and, 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 and then have that heard in arbitration.
0: Christo Avelis is a professor at the University of Toronto, joining us here on the Scott Thompson show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott. Do you think the government misjudged the resolve of the teachers or the unions in this case?
3: I I, I think they have, but I think especially maybe they misjudged the view of the public. I think they had to know that the teachers unions are obviously, you know, a, a, a formidable force. Uh, that they were never fans of the of the Ford government because if you look at the teachers unions, whether it's between say the NDP and the Liberals, some of the unions are more NDP friendly, some of them are more liberal friendly among the teachers unions, but none of them are necessarily close to the Ford government. So they had to know that when they were approaching, you know, education cuts, asking teachers to to take you know sub inflation wage increases, that they would get some kind of pushback, and maybe they were willing to take that because again, if the government assumed that the public would be on their side. Let's say that instead of 60% of the public being with the teachers, it was 60% with the government. Then the government would take this as a win-win. Any labor dispute by the teachers could be used by the government to uh, bolster its image as standing up for the working class, you know, regular Joes of Ontario against the special interests and the you know the the big fat teachers unions and etc. But now that it doesn't seem to be going in their favor. I think that they, they, they're sort of stuck, because if they, if they back down totally, I mean, I think it'll vindicate the actions against them. But of course, if they keep on this current path, it makes it rather difficult. And as you noted, this was the first question asked by Andrea Horwath. Uh, the Ontario NDP has been taking a lead uh, legislatively on op- opposing this general course of action. And because it's so unpopular, uh, the move by the Ford government with the people, It gives the opposition further incentive to hammer this file home. I mean, the NDP is, in a sense, the party of labor. They would always be speaking on this issue, but it makes it a lot easier as the opposition to hammer the government on a file that you know the people uh, are against the government on.
0: Last question for you. We only got about a minute. Has, because we're talking politics here, has the NDP scored enough political points on this issue?
3: I mean, the, the, the polling is, is indecisive right now. A lot of people have been pointing, uh, pointing to polls that show the Ontario Liberals in a decent position. And certainly they've made some kind of recovery since the 2018 collapse. But a lot of that polling was done before it became clear that Stephen Del Duca is likely going to be the next leader. And when a party is polled without a leader, people often assumed that they're under-polled. But it could mean that everyone is reading onto that party their idealized leader. And in some of the polling we've seen since, um, you know, Del Duca has emerged as a likely leader, the Liberals have started to sink in the polls and Horwath and the NDP have t- started to rise. So I think they've certainly been doing the work. Whether or not voters reward them is something we'll have to, to, we'll have to wait to see.
0: Well, it certainly is must-see TV. Christo, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me.
1: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says it is past time to resolve the nationwide blockades and tensions over a B.C. pipeline project and is asking demonstrators now to engage with his government to seek a solution. Just about 90 minutes ago, he spoke in the House of Commons and warned that a path forward won't be easily found, but said that everyone has a stake in getting the solution right. So finding a
1: solution will not be simple. It will take determination, hard
4: work, and cooperation.
0: He also added that you can't respond to these protests in haste. There are those who would want us to act in haste, who want us to boil this down to slogans and ignore the complexities, who think that using force is helpful. It is not. Patients may be in short supply, and that makes it more valuable than ever. Probably a direct shot at Conservative opposition leader Andrew Scheer, who called Trudeau's remarks the weakest response to a national crisis that he's ever heard, saying that the government needs to crack down on the protests and end the blockades of Canada's rail system. Let's bring in our next guest. His name is George Holberg, professor, Environment and Natural Resource Policy, School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia. George, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for uh, coming on today. Uh, uh, I guess you're pretty close to these rail blockades, or at least close to the heart of where the blockades originally began in northern B.C. What's the buzz, what's the sense like in B.C.?
4: Well, this has been a long-standing challenge for British Columbia as well as the rest of Canada. Most of our pipeline, anti-pipeline activism has actually been focused on oil sands pipelines, but this is a a natural gas uh, pipeline up north. It does raise many of the same issues.
0: This one has uh, obviously a lot of wrinkles to it because the elected band council voted in favor of this project but the hereditary chiefs are saying no we don't we don't want this.
4: Yes that is in fact uh one of the most important complexities of the uh, situation uh and it is uh, interesting and revealing that the uh, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs have gotten such extraordinary support from this massive protest uh, across the country. The, the person that I actually look to for leadership on this is obviously the Prime Minister, but, but it's also uh, Perry Beldegard. Uh, he spoke this morning, the, um, the Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, and he called for uh, an open dialogue uh, among the Wet'suwet'en of, of both parties and the company and the governments. And I think that's really where, where things need to go. I think we need to find a way to help the Indigenous communities themselves come to uh, some kind of an agreement.
0: Here's that clip that you Referring to from national chief Perry Bellegarde earlier today.
1: Today again, of course, we're calling for for calm. We're calling for creativity and constructive dialogue. The Wet'suwet'en peoples have asked that they be given space for their own internal dialogue and ceremonies to be held. They've told me they want to create their own approach to formalize discussions with the federal and provincial governments, the Crown. And they need to be given that
0: time. So I like what he's saying. I also like today what the prime minister is saying. Uh, listen, we're not going to throw gasoline on a fire and force these people off the, 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 the railways. We have to negotiate. We have to sit down and talk. Uh, it sounds like Andrew Scheer just wants to bring in the bulldozers and uh, the paddy wagons and bring everyone away. Uh, h- how do you uh, you know gauge each, uh, each person's response here? Well, uh,
4: both are... Clearly appealing to what I would refer to as a settler audience, uh, so uh, sheer obviously the conservative wing of that audience, and Trudeau the more progressive or liberal wing um, obviously there are some pretty big differences there, but even in Trudeau 's marks you didn 't see any particular new commitments with respect to reconciliation, because I think that taking a step back a lot of what this again, we're all surprised by the magnitude and rapidity with which these protests have emerged. And but to a certain extent, it's not all that surprising because there have been a, a long standing set of pent up grievances uh, for, uh, on the reconciliation file. Uh, Trudeau has been in power now for uh, more than five years, and he hasn't been able to make significant progress on that. So it's understandable that there's a lot of frustration pent up. I think a lot of people, the, the allies that are supporting the in, indigenous people on these rail lines and elsewhere, are some of them are young climate activists who are also frustrated by the lack of what they see as progress on uh, addressing the climate crisis.
0: I uh, I have to be honest I wasn't a big fan of uh, the Prime Minister's initial response and I know he was, you know, campaigning for a seat on the UN Security Council in Africa, but do you think he maybe misjudged the the magnitude of this topic? Because I think most Canadians would want him to come home to say, "All right, let's let's uh, try to resolve this."
4: Well, I think he is doing that. The question is how you do it. There's two things you need to resolve. You need to get you need to get the trains moving again, uh, but you also need to resolve the much more long-standing challenge of reconciliation with indigenous people. You can get do one of those relatively quickly. The other takes the reconciliation file takes uh, much much longer, and I think what needs to happen in order to get some sort of short-term standing down uh, is that I- indigenous leadership needs to communicate to protesters that, you know, please give them the space uh, to work to some kind of agreement for a period of time and, and bring the protest down for a bit. And, and then let's see what happens.
0: We're chatting with uh, George Hoberg, he's a professor at uh, the University of British Columbia, just chatting about the federal government and uh, how they're going to come to a resolution to stop these rail blockades and get to that point of reconciliation. We have seen a number of apologies in the past, uh, efforts towards reconciliation. Many of them have been well received by the indigenous uh, community. Um, Another thing that jumped out at me is, you know, this this just isn't an indigenous people's issue, or or even an environmental protection issue. We have the energy sector involved, certainly the economy is involved. There's a lot of tentacles here.
4: Yes, and you'll know one of the things that's happening, the reason that there are so many tentacles is because activists have figured out a way to get power by shutting down infrastructure, right? And that's, you know, there's a, a kind of a long tradition of this, but we now see the power of what a relatively small group of committed people can do to actually inflict some um, tension or harm on the economy. And uh, it, it's, it's forcing the prime minister and industry to begin uh, paying much more serious attention to the protesters' demands. And we'll see where that goes.
0: Could this, could this be the new norm in terms of protesting? Hey, if we want to get our message across, whatever the cause is, let's go set up shop on a GO train line or a TTC line in Toronto or, uh, you know, whatever the case is in a particular community.
4: Uh, it's, this is not new at all. Uh, the question is how big it is. Right. This is. What's new about this is how widespread it is. And this is really a, a sense, it's a, it's a reprise of the I Don't Know More protest that uh, sprang up in during Harper's government. Uh, this has uh, so far been able to, I think, to attract more allies from non-Indigenous groups, and it's spread further around the country. Uh, the question is what happens next, how durable it is, what happens when the uh, police ultimately uh, uh, respond by intervening. Uh, and all those things we we just don't know yet. Uh, but the key thing is to for I would I would think for Indigenous leaders and for uh, Trudeau and the government of British Columbia to try to figure out how to use this crisis moment to get more traction on addressing the reconciliation file than they've been able to uh, to date.
0: Our guest is uh, George Hoberg. He's a professor at UBC, joining us here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott today. Uh, One of the other comments that the prime minister made while he was in Africa, and it it raised my eyebrow, and I'm sure Canadians from coast to coast found it very interesting as well, but he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, the government is not in a position to order police or the RCMP uh, to enforce court injunctions against protesters. And I'm thinking, well, he, he, of course, he can. I mean, he can, he can legislate this, or he can ask the RCMP to, to do this. But is he just playing politics, or is he playing? Uh, does he know that, you know, if he, if he throws in the RCMP, this could be a powder keg.
4: Uh, he, he, he's being judicious about the use of political interference with uh, police enforcement, uh, which is very wise. Because once you open that can of worms, it's hard to close it. Um, And he, remember what Trudeau has said since he's come into office and before he was elected, that nothing is more important than the government-to-government relationship between Canada and and its First Nations. And despite having that commitment for a long time, which is a sincere moral commitment that I think he has, he's been very frustrated at how much progress he has been able to make on that file. So it's understandable that he's being as cautious as he is, Sheer obviously, is in a completely different uh, political and moral situation where he is appealing to a different logic and a, and a different constituency.
0: So what is next?
4: Uh, well, I hope what's next is that people like uh, uh, Perry Bellegarde uh, begin to play a bigger role uh, with uh, the Wet'suwet'en leaders, uh, both the traditional and uh, the more modern ones, uh, and the governments of British Columbia and the governments of Canada. I, I hope that they can get together and um, forge a path to resolving that particular dispute with respect to Coastal and First Nations and also help uh, government leaders set an agenda for how to make greater progress uh, on the reconciliation file more broadly defined.
0: And uh, just regarding the hereditary chief's lands, that territory, because the pipeline, that natural gas pipeline is running through that, would some sort of agreements uh, ultimately entail that, hey, we're going to change the direction of this pipeline, or because it's already been approved by the elected band council, that that is going to be off the table?
4: Well, I mean, that that's, to me, that that's a discussion that has to go on between the company, uh, the approving government, which is British Columbia in that case, uh, and the band council and the hereditary chiefs. And I, I think that's the forum that they're trying to create. I was surprised to year that the hereditary chiefs have proposed an alternative route, and Coastal GasLink has simply said, oh, we can't do that because it's too expensive or too inconvenient. Um, For the First Nations who have been inconvenienced by colonialism for millennia, uh, that's kind of a tough argument to hear. Uh, And I I, I study a lot of pipeline controversies. Uh, It sounds very familiar to me with what was happening in the Keystone XL pipeline in Nebraska when the company said we simply cannot... Um, reroute it. It it would just be uh, it it wouldn't work. And then the Obama administration basically rejected their existing proposal. And the next week, the company decided, oh, yeah, we can reroute it. And uh, maybe that's one potential outcome that could come out of uh, this more closed discussion between all the uh, necessary
0: parties. We haven't heard a lot here in Ontario from Premier Doug Ford on these blockades. How do you think B.C. Premier John Horgan has handled this?
4: Well, he's uh, the first government in Canada to actually legislate the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. So he's arguably further ahead in his uh, moral and political and legal commitment to reconciliation. But he's still sounding awful, an awful lot like a settler government leader when he talks about adhering to the rule of law. Uh, We'll see. This is a a huge test of leadership for both Horgan and Trudeau uh, and uh, a variety of indigenous leaders, and we'll see how this all comes out.
0: George, really appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. George Hoberg is a professor, Environment and Natural Resource Policy, School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia, breaking down some of his thoughts on these rail blockades, which have been making headlines really from coast to coast. We know that eastern Canada, virtually in terms of um, uh, CN and Via Rail, virtually shut down. And I know portions of that eastern... Uh, Ottawa to Montreal to Quebec City leg are going to be reopened later on this week. I think it's Thursday. Um, But, you know, when you're talking about Toronto to Ottawa, Toronto certainly to Belleville where it kind of splits off and you can either go to Montreal or you can go to Ottawa. uh, I mean, these are the blockade areas that really have to be lifted and how they're going to get there. I don't know. I mean, they're, you talk about a, a huge stumbling block or a huge meeting that is on tap between the hereditary chiefs, the provincial government in B.C., certainly the province here in Ontario has to be involved. The federal government has to be at the table. How they're going to get to a point where all sides are happy, I guess, for lack of a better term, content with the go-forward plan, I think there is a vast amount of space in between these two sides. I really do. I don't think this is going to be a one-day meeting and both sides are going to be at the end of it saying, okay, we got a deal. I think there's a number of days, and maybe even more than a week or two, before both sides are comfortable enough walking away from the table and saying, we are okay with what we have decided. And we know that ultimately the rail blockades are going to end, hopefully peacefully. We don't want another Oka But what does the other side get? What does the hereditary chiefs get at the end of the day? Such a fascinating story, given that the elected band council said, yeah, we're okay with this. The indigenous leaders who were elected by their community have approved this plan. But the hereditary chiefs don't want it, don't like it, want a better deal. Here's a comment from the Grand Chief Serge Otis Simon. He's in the Montreal area with the Mohawk Council. Listen to what he had to say.
1: Removing the blockades doesn't mean that you surrender anything. It just means you tell the government, okay, we're going to show good faith, we're going to remove the blockades, but keep this in mind. If you do not continue on a a dialogue of respect with the, the hereditary chiefs, then we'll
0: be back okay so i like two things out of that quote i think it's a great comment the word respect is ultimately highlighted from grand chief sergio de simon they want respect and i think they have it and i also like the fact that listen if the blockades come down it doesn't mean we lose it doesn't mean we've been defeated it means we're going to the tra- table trying to resolve this dispute. They've made their point. They've blocked CN and they've blocked VIA uh, trains for days on end. The economy has been, I don't want to say crippled, because it's not crippled, but it has been impacted. We're talking millions upon millions of dollars. We're talking jobs being stunted because of what has gone on. So they've made their point. They've gotten their point across. They've gotten the attention of the federal government, certainly, and others who are going to be at the table. So I love the comment that, listen, if the rail blockades come down, it's not a loss. It means we're going to the table to negotiate a deal, but we want respect. I like that. Let's get to the table and get something done that all sides can agree to. We can take these darn blockades down because it's hurting all of us at the end of the day. The economy is being impacted. The blockades have to come down. Let's get a deal done. And it comes down to leadership. It comes down to the Prime Minister to say, hey, listen, this is what we're doing. This is what we're offering. May not be a take it or leave it. But he's got to get his message across that he means business. And there is a way that both sides can leave that table with maybe not a full-fledged smile, but a bit of a smirk to say, okay, we got something.
1: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900CHML.
0: What happens when children with autism reach adulthood? Well, the gap in care is incredible. There's a compelling story on our website at 900CHML.com that tells the story of Maureen Francella and her son, Stephen, who has severe autism spectrum disorder and currently resides at a psychiatric ward here in Hamilton at St. Joe's in Hamilton. And after Stephen was brought to the emergency room after a particular bad episode, uh, he was uh, admitted, basically, to the psych ward for what was supposed to be a short stay. Turns out he's been there for 14 months and counting. Now, Maureen says that she's terrified that Stephen is never going to get into another uh, care facility, given that the wait times... Are so long and the space is extremely limited. Once a child becomes an adult, they typically lose access to a lot of the government funding and services intended for children. And autism services is no different. Global's Megan Colley spoke with April Wells, whose daughter Courtney has autism, and found herself no longer able to care for her adult daughter and sought out a suitable care facility only to find that there was none with room available. And unable to access a group home Courtney now has spent the last year living in a psychiatric intensive care unit spending her day in a hospital bed without the necessary support programs
2: How has Courtney changed being in the hospital the last year? She's regressed It rips my, my heart out to see her like that and I feel like I've let her down because I honestly thought that there would be a place for her a loving, caring place after I was too ill to take care of them.
0: Courtney and Stephen, uh, you know, they're not alone. They're not alone in this. There are thousands of others in the same boat. Megan Colley, Global News National Online Journalist, joins us now to talk a little bit more about this story. Th- this is not a unique story to these two individuals. There's thousands more in this same boat, right?
2: Unfortunately, yeah, and it's not just in Ontario either. It's across the whole country.
0: When a person with autism turns 18 a lot of the the things that they have enjoyed is is a horrible word that they have been accustomed to uh, really changes, doesn't it?
2: It does. So what we see is 18 being the cutoff for access to services and funding, as you were saying, that are intended for children. The problem, though, is that 18 isn't a magic number. It's being treated as, you know, the the point at which a person with autism may be able to move out of um, intensive care, you know, intensive daily care into maybe a bit more of an independent life. But that's assuming that all these adults aren't, uh, you know, really far on the spectrum with a, with more severe autism. You can have a 36 year old like Stephen who is a 36 year old man, but he can't take care of himself like a- another. 36-year-old man can because of how severe his autism is. So there's this sort of arbitrary cutoff where it's like, okay, you're 18 now, you can take care of yourself. But what we see is actually um, a lot of panic, especially from parents, because if you think of a child who is 18, 20, 25, though, that means that their parents are aging too. So as their parents get older and less equipped to take care of them, they start to worry not only about what will happen in the in the next weeks months or a few years but really what will happen to my kid once i'm gone who will be here to advocate for them
0: and the gap isn't just about their care but there are other things and the story points out that you know autism canada is shining the spotlight on some major problems like post-secondary programs uh innovative housing solutions mental health support employment all these other factors are in play as well
2: Absolutely. So we see uh, people with autism overrepresented in homeless populations across Canada. We also see them op- overrepresented in psychiatric ward populations, as you were pointing out with uh, the two people, two of the people we spoke to for this story. Um, and what that's showing us is that there really is little to no development happening on the au- adult side of autism care and supports. So we hear a lot right now about how more is needed, more funding is needed, more services are needed for young kids. Um, and while that might be true, uh, there is way less available right now for adults. So what we're seeing are a lot of grassroots organizations, and I spoke to a few really amazing, inspirational people who are dedicating their time and their own money to help give these young people um, a transition period, whether that is, you know, connecting them to group home supports, whether that is helping them fill out a job application, whether that's even just accompanying them to a job interview. It's really about providing you know the nature of autism is such that um, you you crave uh, continuity so really providing that continuity of care and those familiar faces throughout um, is, is key here. And what we're seeing, obviously, at 18, a lot of these kids are being pushed out of the school where they've been going for 18 years. They're being um, traded off from a pediatrician that they know and are comfortable with onto an adult doctor. So there, are, it's a time of major change, and um, there's really not anyone larger program that is targeting this time in a person with autism's life. We're
0: chatting with Global News National online journalist Megan Cauley here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott today. Um, The Canadian Autism Spectrum Disorders Alliance says we need a national strategy. Is that even on the radar?
2: It is. So, you know, there was some excitement uh, towards the end of last year. I believe it was in August or September. Justin Trudeau um, mentioned that he is working towards um, some sort of federal uh, strategy. We haven't heard anything by way of, you know, there's no. There's not been any commitment in written form. Um, but this does seem to be the call coming from a lot of advocacy groups, is that we need to move above and beyond leaving this to the province, because um, there is a lack of consistency from province to province, um, some places might have higher demand, but fewer services, where other places will have lower demand and more services. So really to level all of that out. And one of the key ways that you can do this is by securing a national strategy from the federal government, because then you're getting federal funding that you can allocate evenly across the board. And by evenly, I mean, you know, where de- where the demand is.
0: In, in chatting with the, the guests that you spoke with, whether it was Maureen or, or April Wells, What is their biggest challenge? Is it just that continuation of care?
2: I think, you know, one thing that a lot of people don't understand about autism specifically is that it is a developmental condition. And you heard in the quotes from from, uh, Courtney's mom that um, she has seen her regress living in a psychiatric ward and I think that's the really important point here is that people with autism regardless of where they fall on the spectrum if we can provide them a continuity of care um with people that they recognize and are comfortable with um then we can get them to a point where their quality of life is much higher and we can stabilize that and we can maintain it over time but when we see these people being placed in somewhere like a psychiatric ward where they're not having access to friends and family they're not getting things like being it art therapy or speech pathology or any of these sort of ex- extra services, um, we see them actually regress to the, so somebody who maybe we got, you know, further along on the spectrum to, to be able to, say, dress themselves in the morning, now they're all the way back to where they started before they had any care at all. So the key here really is um, making sure that these services are, are, are available and available over time
0: well it's really a fascinating story obviously the people involved uh, uh, you know in, in Francella's case you know we're just referring to experiencing that burnout when Stephen was home because you know he's you know, a lot to handle especially when he has those bad episodes you really got to feel for these individuals
2: oh my gosh it was it's been heartbreaking hearing from these families and especially the parents who are aging um, because They've been doing all that they can for as long as they can, but they feel backed into a corner, especially with someone like Steven, who, again, he's 36 years old. old. He has the physical strength of a 36-year-old man, but he doesn't fully understand that. And then what happens is his mom can't communicate to him, as you would a person not on the spectrum, to say – this is why you're here. So he gets confused and upset and frustrated. And those violent outbursts happen more and more often. And it's just this horrible sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. And um, Maureen, as she was saying, she's like, I just have to sit by and hope that, you know, he'll he'll get off one of these wait lists and he will be placed into a long-term care facility. But it's been 14 months. So she, the, the frustration is at an all-time high.
0: I can imagine. Megan, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for sharing this story with us.
2: Thanks for
0: having me. Megan Colley, National, Global News National Online Journalist, talking to us about uh, her story. And you can check it out at 900CHML.com. What happens when children with autism reach adulthood? The gap is absolutely incredible. And there's just a couple of examples and many other uh, tidbits of info that you can uh, inform yourself on when you uh, read that article. It's a great read and just a touching uh, story uh, from those uh, individuals involved.
1: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Very interesting story in a suburb of Detroit. And uh, it has the mayor of Windsor kind of thinking out loud. And I thought that may echo in other cities, including right here in Hamilton. And we've all heard about those video doorbells. And some of you listening right now, you, you probably have some of those. The doorbell has a camera and it records the front of your doorstep or the front of your house and alerts you if there is something, well, offside at home. It's happened time and again. We hear many of these stories during Christmas time when packages are dropped off at front doors of homes and thieves steal them. We see these thieves on these doorbell videos. Well, there was a man by the name of Ali Shaheen. I am hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. Well, he woke up one morning. This is uh, last summer, in fact, in Detroit, and uh, he checked his smartphone. He got an alert on his smartphone at 2.40 a.m., and it was alert from his doorbell video camera that was mounted on uh, the front of his garage, and it sensed that there was some uh, movement at 2.40 in the morning. So he's going on his phone, he's checking out this video, thinking, okay, what, what happened? So the video shows a man rummaging through the back of his pickup truck and checking out his toolbox. That video was then posted on social media by Ali. He alerted the police. Within minutes, this is how fast things operate now, a suspect was identified. Within hours, this suspect was arrested in connection with a string of recent attempted car break-ins. Police said the arrest was another example of the successful partnership between the force, the community, and Amazon's household surveillance arm, Ring. Last year, Livonia PD signed a partnership with Amazon Ring's Neighbors app, and the company even provided free Ring cameras, which then the police department gave away uh, in monthly draws to citizens, to homeowners. And apparently Ring has signed similar deals with hundreds of law enforcement agencies across the U.S. So now the mayor of Windsor, his name is Drew Dilkins, he wants him saying that he wants to make sure that his police department can respond to crime, quote, efficiently, effectively, with all the modern tools available to them. And and you hear the crime stories here on 900 CHML. When there's a crime, whatever the crime is, one of the calls to action from Hamilton Police is, hey, if there's any residents out there who has video surveillance, uh, let us know. Contact us. If there's anything suspicious that you've seen, let us know. So these things are out there, but what is interesting is a mayor of a city is saying, hey, we need Amazon Ring in our city. Do we want this? There's got to be some pitfalls, isn't there? Let's bring in Dr. Bonnie Stewart, assistant professor at the University of Windsor, who joins us now. Dr. Stewart, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Rick? Not too bad at all. So the idea seems to be good. This mayor wants to fight crime using these doorbell cameras. Uh, But there's some privacy concerns here as well, isn't there?
5: There are privacy concerns, and there are also actually some deeper concerns as well. On the surface, it sounds sensible, right? Ring gets framed as a safety app. Our mayor here in Windsor, Drew Dilkens, has been suggesting since September that he's interested in making Windsor the first Amazon Ring city in Canada. And hey, it's great to be first in a lot of things. Um, In this case, I actually think that there's a real need for a public discussion and some transparency around what this conversation would actually mean for the community if we did bring Ring in. You talked about the case that was mentioned with the Livonia police, CBC were Down here in Windsor last week. Um, They talked to folks over in Livonia. They got this great story. Absolutely. However, there are three problems with framing Ring as a safety app. And the first one is that, for the most part, it actually doesn't work super well. Um, Yes, now and then you will get surveillance footage that will help people, uh, will help the cops. And that's great to help the cops, to help them track down a case shortly after something happened. However, just last week, NBC released a major investigative news report that suggests after interviews with 40 law enforcement agencies in eight states that partnered with Ring last year, there was almost no concrete evidence to support that the, that the burglaries were really reduced um, or that there was much prevention of crime based on this. And what's actually happening is that police forces are spending a fortune of their time and their resources, going through footage that they don't need because people are calling in, going, "Hey, I have a raccoon in my yard. Can you come deal with it?" Right. So first of all, they get overwhelmed by um, by footage. That's that's one of the one of the first problems. Then there's the whole question of safe for whom. Um, so one of the things that's happening with Ring is it isn't just your video doorbell, right? Video doorbells are twenty years old. No one's trying to take people's. Um, surveillance systems if they want to look out at their own property to see who's on it. But once you take that capacity to look out on your own property and see who's on it, and you put it onto a social media system like Neighbours, which is what Amazon Ring as a system actually operates on, um, you are creating a whole lot of neighbourhoods that suddenly think that their crime rates are increasing drastically because everyone is talking about every suspicious person that they see walking down the street. And half of those suspicious people, A, may just be canvassing for the Cancer Society. B, and this is a real problem that has been shown to, so, uh, shown to show up with Ring, they're actually your black and brown neighbors. Um, so the amplification of discrimination and bias based on these systems is pretty significant. Um, and... Overall, what you're also doing is creating a system where basically you're allowing for most of these um, smart devices, they're easily hackable. So Ring makes us as a society vulnerable to hacking, vulnerable to racist profiling, vulnerable to data profiling, because all of the data that comes out of these is owned by Amazon, right? And we can also end up on social media in our pajamas because we happen to take our garbage out at 7 a.m., and um, there we are on our neighbor's ring, and we have no control over that. Our mayor, uh, his, his position is, well, you have the ability to participate or not. And 100%, if you own the ring camera, you can decide whether to put the footage from your house Um, onto the Neighbors app so that the police can see it. Right now, as it stands, police can still, if you, um, if there's a crime, police can ask for footage, but they do have to go through a warrant system. What the Neighbors app does is it bypasses all of those civil liberties laws, and things just can circulate much more quickly, much more easily, but you can also end up on neighborhood social media taking out your KFC garbage, suddenly Amazon decides to monetize that data and your health insurance company is like, oh, so we received information that you've been out um, taking KFC garbage out of your house three times a day. Um, what are you doing? Most of us probably have nothing to hide, but we also probably still close our curtains.
0: And one of the great comments you have in the article, I think it was on CBC, is once the door is open, you can't close it. So once once we go down this route... That's it. We're, we're up the creek with potentially no paddle.
5: Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, the trade-offs of the ring system undermine years of civil liberties law in Canada. But a lot of those impacts will take a couple of years to see, right? We're creating a surveillance society, but it may not become super visible to us within a year or two. Just like it took us a couple of years to see how those cute little Facebook quizzes about am I a cauliflower or a broccoli could undermine Democrat, uh, democratic elections. So sometimes when we adopt something because it sounds fun or it sounds simple, it's not that simple. And I think that the situation with Ring is, you know, how can citizens opt out of participating if their neighbors all get a doorbell cam? Even if they never leave their house, that produces data on them. Suddenly you're that person who never left their house. Um, So what we're creating is different from systems that we've had before, in the sense that it's one thing if you have a video doorbell. It's a whole other thing if that is tied into a giant corporate system that also allows the cops to bypass any of the legal protections that we have because you have no control over what happens to any of your data after that point. And so before Canada leaps on this conversation, I think we need to talk about it a little bit more. Even one of the Amazon software engineers who designed this kind of wrote last month that, look, actually the mass deployment of Internet connected cameras just isn't compatible with a free society.
0: Our guest is Dr. Bonnie Stewart, assistant professor at the University of Windsor, joining us here on the Scott Thompson show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott. Here's another scenario as well. And I I love the KFC health analogy. But if you have a bunch of people in a neighborhood with these Amazon rings who are connected to the neighbors app uh, and they're reporting all these different scenarios, suspicious people, whatever the case is. Uh, that could have obviously an impact on crime stats if there is in fact a number of uh, you know uh, legitimate crimes being connected. But how does that affect house prices, r- uh, real estate prices in that area? That could that can have an impact as well.
5: I think it could. I'm not sure if any if any data has been collected on that yet. Um, Amazon only bought Ring in 2018. Uh, it started partnering with American police forces just last year. So. All of the data is relatively new. What's showing up is that actually in terms of collaring criminals, there's not a ton, like the, 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 sex, the, the success rate is not huge um, in terms of catching people, and the prevention rate is minimal. What is kind of happening is Amazon's building this for-profit video surveillance empire, giving the cops VIP access. Cops go, hey, this is way too much footage. It's not even useful to us. And then Amazon is starting to jump in and go, hey, you know, we also sell facial recognition software. Maybe we could go that route. Um, So there there is a major profit line for Amazon in this. It does seem on the surface like it might be really great for our police forces. And again, that makes sense. We all want more safety. But this isn't actually proving in practice to get people to... A great deal more safety.
0: At the end of the day, too, who owns the video? Is it the homeowner? Is it Amazon? Amazon. Wow. And when Amazon
5: owns it, they the the, the comment I was making about you know me and my KFC garbage, it's. It's one thing for Amazon to know everything I order online and to also be able to see what I'm putting out in the garbage. Um, it's another thing when they begin taking all of that data and putting it together into profiles that they can sell. Right now, that capacity is there. The market just hasn't completely emerged. But within a year or two, that's kind of the picture that we're looking at is people can then... Um, And by people, I guess I mean, you know, entities that have an interest, like your health insurance company, in knowing what you're actually doing in the privacy of your home. Hey, you say that you eat healthily, but um, we're seeing all this evidence otherwise. The profit factor in that is huge. And the likelihood of being able to put all of those pictures together based on data and video data is hugely likely. So Amazon is essentially, Amazon doesn't pay a lot of taxes, right? Amazon is a... um, You know, Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, and um, they make billions and billions in profit. They pay something like an 11% tax rate, which is way lower than any individual in society. They're not really contributing to the civic infrastructure, but they are actually, through these tools, beginning to take it over. And even for local governments and police forces, I think on the surface it sounds like it's going to solve a problem of package theft, but that problem of package theft is basically still saving Amazon money, right? Because if their packages that aren't getting delivered. Um, that problem of package theft is not really at the core of most of our social crime problems. And we can't give over everything in society that we've built around people's protections, people's rights, just for more frictionless sharing that benefits amazon
0: yeah the the package uh theft issue seems rather minuscule compared to you know selling profiles of individuals or families
5: and, you know and it's not like i'm not even a i'm a social media scholar right i i i'm from pei i didn't even lock my doors till i was 40 so i'm not <laughs> someone who's like oh privacy <laughs> um, i lock my doors now but I'm not someone who has spent my life necessarily advocating for increased privacy, but when we look at this happening and we look at the patterns by which digital technologies and digital technology companies can take over huge amounts of non-governmental power in society, um, we can't vote for Amazon, right? We can't vote them out after four years. We can't do any of those things, same as we can't do that with Facebook. And so I think it's important to learn some of the lessons of the past couple of years and maybe go, you know what? Um... Mr. Mayor, with all due respect, I think we need to rethink this conversation.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. Dr. Stewart, thanks for the time today. Uh, thanks, Rick. It was great to talk to you. Dr. Bonnie Stewart, assistant professor at the University of Windsor. Fascinating. I, I didn't. I didn't think this interview was going to go down that route. But I'm a little scared now. There's no way I'm getting an Amazon ring. They're going to create a profile on me like they haven't already. <laughs> And yes, I'm one of those taking the KFC to the trash as well from time to time. But yeah, the, the privacy concerns are absolutely real, so much so that a group of more than 30 civil rights organizations have signed an open letter demanding that Ring's partnership with police be terminated. And the claim is, uh, you know, th- this, this deal with, between Amazon and police threatens civil liberties, privacy and civil rights, and exist without oversight or accountability. Who is holding Amazon at their feet to the fire, their proverbial feet to the fire, in terms of our civil liberties, our civil rights, our privacy when it comes to these doorbell cameras? I don't see the federal government in the United States doing so, shaking its finger at Amazon or CEO Jeff Bezos to say, hey, Enough of this. Creating a profile of you, of your family. I mean, there's bits and pieces all over the place. Whenever you're on social media, websites, things you click on, stories you read online, ads that you search for. It's all a huge puzzle that is being put together every second or minute of the day. And through this, and yeah, we want to deter those doorstep thefts. I mean, they're horrible. But this could, and it sounds like it is, opening up a huge can of worms for individuals and families.